Welcome to The Social Cure, a place where we have candid conversations about social and health issues. I'm your host, Athalie. Welcome to the second episode of Season 1, where we are exploring adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs for short. In Episode 1, we gave an overview of ACEs and the research behind them. If you haven't already heard that episode, now might be a good time to pause and go listen to it. As a quick recap, ACEs are a set of 10 adverse experiences that someone can experience as a child. Things such as physical abuse and imprisonment of a family member. There are strong correlations between these experiences and significant health issues later in life. Today, I'm here again with my co-host Joseph. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into some of the things that we talked about in episode one. One of the issues that you brought up in episode one was how your doctor had never brought these things up to you when you had appointments with them or interactions with healthcare providers of various sorts. We talked about that briefly, but I wanted to go back and dig into that a little bit more. There's several different approaches to healthcare, and a lot of Western medicine is very focused on identifying people that are sick, treating their sickness, focusing on a cure, and then you move on to the next sick person. But I think we know intuitively, one, there's a lot of problems that don't have cures. And two, there's usually a lot more things happening than a single illness at any one time. And so in the nursing profession, Florence Nightingale, who's considered our founding mother of nursing, realized this pretty early on. And she started a focus in nursing on prevention and preventing diseases, which grew into public health mindset digging deeper beyond what's happening to any individual and looking at what's happening to a family, what's happening to a community, what's happening to a large population of people and finding the common things that might be causing problems. Sometimes this is called an upstream approach because it's based off of the idea that you can keep fishing someone out of the water that's drowning or you can go upstream and figure out how these people are getting in the water in the first place. And so when we look at these adverse childhood experiences in the context of going upstream and looking at what's happening, there's a lot of layers that happen before we have a sick person who's showing up with diabetes or a substance use problem in front of a healthcare provider in our system. The CDC has a a graphic which shows this very succinctly. It's a pyramid-shaped diagram, and at the point of the pyramid is early death. Immediately below that is disease and disability and really obvious social problems. Where your doctor and many doctors are sitting is trying to prevent people that are in the disease, disability, and social problems setting from having an early death. And so that work is focused very much at the point of the pyramid, the top. And that's very worthy work. Obviously, we want people who are sick, disabled, who are struggling with these things to also get help. But prevention and the public health approach ask more questions and figure out what's happening underneath this and how can we prevent people from even getting to this point. And we'll put a um, copy of this diagram in the show notes so it's easy to see. It's also easy to find on the the CDC's website. So starting at the bottom, we have things like historical trauma. So this is stuff like your ancestors have experienced war. There's racism. There's been a lot of studies done with people that are survivors of the Holocaust and changes that happened in their biology and their DNA as a result of the experiences. And studies have looked through their experiences, how these things manifested in their lives, but also 
generations later, still expressing a lot of these same issues and same changes in the DNA. So that's kind of far, far in our past. Then there's the local conditions or the context around us. So this would be like the family you were born into, what your race is, the resources in the community around you. All of these things happen outside of individual people. They're not things that we are personally experiencing. This is the situation we're born into. All of these lead to the the time you're born and what your childhood experiences are. So these are the positive and negative things that we discussed and that are asked about in this screening tool. Those adverse childhood experiences lead to disrupted neurodevelopment and changes in the brain, especially for things that happen or experienced at a very young age, zero to 18 months. And some things have been studied also in the zero to five-year-old age range. This is changing how your brain and your body are going to perceive and react to the world around you for the rest of your life. This is also the time where really positive experiences and having a very safe childhood provide a lot of protection to you for later in life as well. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. The hope comes from the fact that the same way that these negative experiences can affect you, you can at any point start working towards positive experiences and those things will also stay with you as well. So the disrupted neurodevelopment often leads to things like learning disabilities, emotional impairments, social problems, as people are getting older, and then the adoption of high-risk behaviors, which in the context of like a substance use problem seems very obvious. It's like, oh, someone's tried out using drugs, they started smoking, but this is also things like how you interact with food, exercise, what your relationships look like, and how you interact with other people around you, and how you expect to be treated, which relates to people being victims or perpetrators of domestic violence. And then after you've gone through all of those layers, we have the disease, disability, and the social problems. And then all of these things combined lead to the statistically likely early death that was talked about in a lot of the original ICE study. That's kind of a a deeper dive back into the other layers of this. That's something that I think we need to really supplement our understanding of sickness and disease. Thanks for that. That was pretty detailed. I totally have a better understanding of how all this plays out. But what stood out for me also is the fact that, like I talked about my experience with my healthcare provider and the tendency is to think that they know something and didn't tell me about it. But from what you said, they may not even be equipped in all cases to dive deep into some of these things, right? Because like you said, a lot of this stuff is covered under the public health umbrella. So they have basically a different mandate. They just want to get you better and then they move to the next thing underscoring that with the fact that medicine is also a business. And so some things are optimized also to produce profit. But looking at this image, it's disheartening actually, because where the medical professionals, as we know them, talking about doctors and physicians, where where they come in is the second pyramid. And the one after that is early death. So it's like they're coming in really late in the process. And there's five or six layers where the problems actually started and got worse over time. So I'm showing up to my medical professional too little, too late 
if I don't have conversations like this, if I don't begin to really ask the right questions and begin to seek appropriate help to begin to reverse some of those things. I think something you said that was super helpful to me also is the fact that these experiences happened at a time someone was young, but they can be reversed. Maybe not 100%, but to the point where someone can lead a better quality life. Thinking about chronic illnesses, I feel when the medical professionals come in with certain chronic problems, I'll speak for myself, like addictions. I had a, a lot of problems with alcohol. And the thing that gave me the most relief was actually going back and really looking at my mental health and, and doing all these other things. It, it really hits close to home for me. You know, I'm really appreciative of the conversation we're having right now. So thank you for that. I think a lot of people that know about this stuff don't want to dig into it because it becomes immediately obvious that a lot more has to change than our healthcare system. Right. So we need to be going back to how we structure our communities. We need to look at things like racism. We need to look at what our supports are for single parents to support their children. We need to look at education we provide and the experiences that kids are having in that, which can also help provide supportive environment for people that have already started down this pathway and have some developmental and, and cognitive impairments. These are often the quote-unquote problem kids at school who are causing problems and a lot of resources get pushed at them relative to what education has to offer in terms of funding. But a lot of those things that we're doing, they aren't changing the end outcome. And so anytime you're talking about a whole societal rethink of how we do everything, people are like, well, that's that's like a lot. Maybe we'll just go back to diagnosing diabetes and we don't want to look at our prison system and our racism and the fact that we reward our web designers better than our school teachers. And we don't want to look at all those things because those solutions to that seem really difficult. You're right, it's a lot of work and it's going to involve a lot of stakeholders. But as you were speaking, something came to me really quickly and we're talking about adverse childhood experiences. In society right now, there's a lot of help given to expecting mothers, right? They're, they're told what to do to carry their baby and have a safe delivery and they want to bring down child mortality and things like that. I will think that with information available, there should be also an arm educating expectant parents and saying, look, these are also some of the things that you should be aware of. These are some of the things that can happen if the kid is exposed to this environment. Not just, we want you to have a safe delivery. Yes, we understand that. You can have a safe delivery and still have the right education to protect the kid when they actually do show up. I feel like th those two at that point can go hand in hand because I don't know that any parent knowing some of the effects that a child can go through would do that. I still have faith in humanity. I don't know that any parent would look at their kid and say, I want this for you sometime in your future. And so I don't know if their existing works like that where expectant parents have been shown some of this information and basically trying to teach them how to parent better is what I'm saying, yeah. but without saying it like that, I guess. So I don't know if you can shed some light on that. I don't know all the systems that could potentially do that. 
But a couple places that I have seen that are, for instance, in the foster care system, when Child Protective Services gets involved, it's usually because there's some threat or danger to the child, either abuse or neglect. And part of what the parents have to do to prove themselves or to demonstrate that they are capable of caring for their kids is go through a lot of parenting support stuff. But then this comes back to the same problem that we talked about with medicine, that we're waiting until a family is in utter crisis before we give them assistance. That's the hardest time to address parenting once you've been parenting your kid for years and you're in a rut and the kid has already experienced things and you're still dealing with your situation. So I think some of those resources are available, but we're not broadly using them in a preventative way. It's more of a reaction to something that happened. And after the fact, at that point, things are already moving into the next generation and being carried on. So in the work you're doing, is that something that you can advise on? Basically taking that court-mandated parenting and moving the timeline up? I think there's a lot of different ways that that could happen. The setting that I work in as a primary care provider, I care for people at all ages. So part of this is things that we as medical providers can do a better job asking questions about things and identifying people that are at risk. You can ask about the risk to the person who's currently a child now, but often those risks also happen to their parents. And so unless their parents are also doing the work to do their own healing, things get passed on through their parenting, through the the way they're able to show up for their kids. So I think part of it is asking those questions and then helping find resources, whether that's family therapy as a whole, that is not nearly as available as it should be. As mental health is very hard to get funding for. Even states that have pretty comprehensive Medicaid state-funded insurance programs often have very limited options for mental health services. Another thing is through the schools, there are systems that provide preschool education and support. And a lot of that is building skills in the children from a young age as a supplement to parenting, but that's not comprehensive support to parents. I think there's several avenues that could be made better that exist. A lot of it is figuring out where you can get money. It's very time consuming because people don't change overnight. They need often months or years of coaching and having support. Can we get it through funding for school systems? I think any of these places could do a good job. It's just where you can get the support. I think it's also an issue of priority and people seeing the information for what it is. It's an investment that's gonna pay off. I believe it will. But I think these conversations can only move forward if we start having the kind of conversation we're having right now. I have something I want to ask you and see if you have some insight to that. One of the experiences from the questionnaire for ACE is divorce, Mm -hmm. so separation of the parents. Now, I understand the other factors of physical harm and things like that. And I understand clearly how those can be mitigated. But when it comes to divorce, we know the numbers, right? It's it's pretty high up there. You can't really do a whole lot about that because you can't make people be together (laughs) in a marriage or whatever union that is. What is your thought on that? My guess is that the reason that they found separation of parents to be one of the, the common experiences is kind of a proxy for dysfunction between the parents that culminates in divorce, and that's like a measurable thing that you can point to. But I don't know that it's healthier for your child to stay together if you're super dysfunctional. 
In fact, there's a lot of research in the realm of domestic violence that witnessing a parent be physically abused, even if you're not, has um, a lot of the same psychological effects as if it was being directed at you. And so I don't think the divorce is as cut and dry as, well, it either happened or it did. If it happened, it's bad. If it didn't happen, that's good. Because I think oftentimes there is actually an increase in safety that comes with your parents separating. However, the fact that they needed to often is pointing to there being a toxic thing at some point. I also think that there's kind of this expectation in our society that if you are separated, you can't be on amicable terms. And so anytime we see examples of this with celebrities, or I can think specifically of an author that I follow when her and her husband got divorced, but she was still posting pictures of them having family dinner together. Everybody was like, what's going on? And she's like, we love our kids and it doesn't mean we can never see each other. She is now married to a woman and he, I think, has a partner as well. They separated because that's what was best for them. I'm sure that was not an easy process, but they've been able to work through that in a way that has allowed them to continue to be a family in some ways. And I think that there are better and worse ways to get divorced. Yeah, I I didn't think about it that way. I just was looking at it from the point where we protect the kid at all costs. But I don't know that anyone can get in between that. Like you said, the divorce a lot of times points to something. I have another question. From your experience as a medical professional, what is the communication like between the medical professionals that we encounter at the second to the last stage, which is the stage before early death, which is disease, disability and social problems, and the public health side of things because from where i'm standing it doesn't seem like there's a lot of information sharing between these two groups of people even though they both have the same end goal to get people healthy and and things like that What, what what is your take on that i think there is an increasing amount of overlap okay and i think we're coming to a place where the way we do healthcare especially in the u.s but in most of the western world is just not sustainable the amount of money that we're spending, it's very expensive to wait till someone is very sick to treat them. The vast majority of healthcare money gets spent in the last very short period of someone's life in that time where they're in the hospital, possibly in the ICU. We're trying to keep them alive once they're very sick compared to the amount of money that, that could be spent trying to prevent us from ever getting to that point. And so I think as economists and politicians are looking at that, there's starting to be more of a realization that like, hmm, maybe it actually would be more cost effective if we tried to shift this money that we're already spending upstream. It's one of the things with this current Supreme Court justice nominee, this debate about how we spend money on healthcare and whether or not this, the new justice that's replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to uphold the Obamacare, Affordable Care Act. And It's definitely not a perfect piece of legislation, but one of the things that it did put a lot of emphasis in and funding was preventative things. It required businesses that were just waiting, hoping they didn't have to pay, insurance companies, hoping that maybe you were insured with a different company by the time you got really sick and they wouldn't have to deal with the the fallout of your illness, trying to distribute that more equally. So I do think that's changing. There's a lot more people that I'm encountering that are trained in both things. So medical doctors who also have public health degrees are working in public health fields and they're trying to help those two systems work together. That's really where my passion is because I think we need both of these things. Obviously, we want to keep intervening to prevent people from dying. 
but we also need to make some investments so that 50 years from now we don't have the highest yet rates of heart disease and diabetes and depression and anxiety and these other major killers that we have in the Western world. So for someone like me, I've made certain life changes, right? Because I read some statistics and things like emphysema, high blood pressure, and those, those are things that I could make a couple life changes, right? That will cause it so I don't overexpose myself to those things. If I came to you today, and I understand you're not my therapist or anything like that, just talking to you as a friend, what is the one thing that you can point me to now that I can start to do to move me along on this journey where until I'm in a situation where I have the resources to begin to talk to a licensed therapist, I can begin to do until I get to that point. I'm not sure what exact actions you were talking about that you would avoid, but I'm guessing they're smoking, the food you eat, whether you exercise. These things are linked with a lot of disease as well as stress levels, which is a more nebulous thing that's a little bit harder to pin down or measure. I believe one of the the starting points for any of these behaviors that we would say are unhealthy is understanding why you do them in the first place. And oftentimes we don't know because it's become so second nature to us to just eat this when I feel this way or I'm stressed so I'm going to go out and smoke. And so the the first step in changing the behavior is figuring out why you're doing it in the first place. Sometimes that will point to something that would be really obvious. Sometimes it will take a lot of time sitting with yourself and thinking through that. But the real change doesn't come from just telling yourself not to do something. It comes from understanding why you're doing it in the first place. That lets you think about other ways you could meet that need in a less harmful way or ways to meet that need that would reduce your risk. That's actually really helpful. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Hey, Athali again. I wanted to provide a correction to a fact that I got wrong in this episode. I mentioned that the vast amount of money is spent on healthcare at the end of life. This number is actually lower according to studies that look at Medicare spending. Medicare insures people over the age of 65 or people who are disabled. Recently, the Journal of the American Medical Association finds that 25% of Medicare money is spent on the final year of their beneficiaries' lives. This is still a concerning amount of money, but not as much as it has been in the past. I will include a link to the full article from the Journal of American Medical Association in the show notes for listeners who want to learn more. Thanks for listening to The Social Cure. If you liked this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a review or a rating. You can find us online at thesocialcurepodcast.com or at socialcurepod on social media. Our theme song, titled I Dunno, is composed by Grapes and licensed under Creative Commons. All other music on this episode is also licensed under Creative Commons. A full track listing is included in the show notes. Production by Rowan Miller.